Have you ever felt like your doctor wasn't really listening to you or left your appointment wishing your provider had seemed more concerned with what you were telling them? If this has happened to you, you've likely experienced medical gaslighting. And it's more than just an offensive nuisance. It can actually be a significant health risk. In today's episode, we're talking about medical gaslighting and the impact it has on women's health. Let's dive in. I'm really excited about this episode, Carolyn. I am too, because I can get fired up over this topic. Oh, I am fired up. You you made me remember stories that I had forgotten about. Yes. And so. you know, I posted about this topic. We're talking about medical gaslighting today. And I posted um, kind of a carousel of posts about this with some stats uh, a while back, earlier, I guess in the fall. And it was one of my most popular posts. I got so much feedback from it. I'm not surprised, and it also makes me really happy. Yeah. You know what? You know when you... I mean, it's sad, but it makes me happy that people are recognizing it. Yeah. You know, um, like when something comes into your, like, purview, and you didn't really know about it before, and then you start seeing it pop up in other places? Like a really... Um, silly example is like you get a new car and then all of a sudden you see that car everywhere on the road yeah okay so we had briefly started talking about medical gaslighting a little while ago like maybe a couple months ago and I remember you said you were like oh my gosh I have already dug into it I have all these stats I have to share with you and since then I I keep seeing things like there was that article in the Washington Post about pain and there was another one 22 yeah. yeah, there's another one before that. Can't remember which outlet about how like the um, n- like the female reproductive system, but not reproductive system so much as like our like sexual organs are like one of the most understudied yes. things ever. Let's tell people what medical gaslighting is. And I think that might help them understand why we're so fired up. Because I guarantee you, if you are a female listening to this episode, you are going to think back and find one, if not several dozen experiences where it has happened to you. Yes. How about I read this definition that you wrote, and then you give them yeah. these examples. So medical gaslighting is when a healthcare provider dismisses your concerns and symptoms by not taking them seriously or suggesting they may doubt what you're telling them. Yes. It's, it it's, really is the medical version of gaslighting. Yeah, which I, I was hesitant to even look into this at first until I really understood what it meant because I got so tired of the term gaslighting like in 2020 or 2019. I don't oh, know. Yeah. Had some friends go through divorces and, uh, you know, posting stuff about gas. And I was just like, I'm so over that term. This version of it, I love. So, and medical gaslighting is so subtle. Let me give you some examples. So, um, these are signs that you may be getting gaslit by your healthcare provider. Your provider continually interrupts you, doesn't allow you to elaborate, or doesn't appear to be an engaged listener. Your provider is not writing down your concerns or asking follow-up questions. Your provider minimizes or downplays your symptoms, for example, questioning whether you have pain. Your provider refuses to discuss your symptoms. 
Your provider will not order key imaging or lab work to rule out or confirm a diagnosis. Your provider, uh, you feel that your provider is being rude, condescending, or belittling. Your provider makes it difficult to get a referral or makes up excuses why they cannot give you one. Your symptoms are blamed on mental illness, but you're not provided with a mental health referral or screened for such an illness. Your provider blames you for your symptoms, such as blaming your symptoms on obesity, stress from work, or being on your period. Your provider forces you to argue to be heard and taken seriously. I, I really couldn't mic say. <laughs> yeah, yes, mic drop. I really could say yes to ha at least half, probably more. Well, it's like once I really learned what medical gaslighting was or what it's referring to, until the past two years when I found my doctor that I see now, I was like, this is my whole medical history as an adult. Yeah. Yeah. As I always went, you know, I... I don't know about you, but like, no matter who I was seeing healthcare wise, I felt like I had to have, okay, these supporting facts, like, this is why I have this here, you know, like, here's my symptoms, you know, like I had to build the case for them. Yes. And I still wasn't always going to get the tests that I wanted or, or even, I think another one heard. too is where you, maybe you even get as far as getting the tests, but then you don't really get to have a discussion about the results of them. Or it, or it's like the, um, in the case of like, a, like a PCP or really like any like MD that you would go and see in their office and get blood work or whatever. Mm -hmm. There's like the, the medical assistant or maybe the nurse will call you back and just be like, oh, doctor reviewed them, everything looks good, and you're like, wait, wait a minute, like what are the numbers? Let's go back well, to the history. And like, as I've learned, can I do a phone consultation and pay for that? Yeah, as I've learned during this perimenopause stage. You know, they're just going to tell you if your values are out of range per what the lab says has defined as the normal range or what insurance has defined as the normal range. But you can still have symptoms related to that lab value, even if it's within the normal range. Right. You know, it needs some interpretation right. in there. Exactly. Okay. Now, I do want to say before we go much further, I want to say that... Um, I know a lot of healthcare providers, whether they're in the mental health space, the physical health space, whether they're MDs or RNs or NPs or whatever. And I really don't think that anybody does it maliciously. Mm -mm. It's not intentional. It's like, I think it comes from a place of they've been trained, we've not been trained, and so they know better. Well, but it's also a form of, what do you call it, bias? Um not unintentional, but unconscious bias. Yeah. Yes, that's a, yes, that makes total that's sense. That's a major player. Right. They may not realize they're doing it, but they're doing it. Right. Exactly. Um, so what I think, when you think about all of these, I think that then the, yes, you may have experienced them. You and I both talked about how we have experienced them. But then there's that second layer that comes on that, that you brought up, Carolyn. And it's like, so it, if you're experiencing medical gaslighting, 
it can it has the potential to then lead you to second guess your own mind and your own body and it can you know you can question why you even brought up these symptoms you feel stupid for bringing it up you feel like you've wasted their time i think especially as women we mm-hmm. we feel guilty like wasting anybody's time right we we're very aware all of us that time is a precious resource and i mean we're i think as women we're just prone to guilt so there's like you feel bad about that um but also the potential for medical gaslighting on women is a little bit unique too, right? Because there's that element of like, oh, it's your menstrual cycle mm-hmm. or PMS. Oh, it's... Or your weight. Your, you, or your hormones. Exactly. Oh, you're a busy mom. You're probably stressed. Or my favorite, you just need to do more self-care. <laughs> Like, all the self-care in the world is not going to improve, right. insert any condition right there. Yeah. But like, the come on. bigger issue, not that not being heard or seen or listened to is, is not bad enough. The bigger issue is that <clears throat> they, for some reason or another, because of this um, bias, they aren't considering or they don't consider your symptoms worthy of a closer look they're kind of end up getting blown off or blamed on your weight or your hormones or pms and the big concern here is that health care providers are less likely to order tests mm-hmm. um labs um they're less likely to make referrals to other providers and specialists and that leads to misdiagnoses, and it leads to some major delays, particularly for women, in getting an accurate diagnosis. Yes, yes. which we're going to get into some statistics later on about, like, major health conditions that have, mm-hmm. like, life and death outcomes where there is discrepancy. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of these stats, we're going to tell you, are going to shock you. Yeah. I couldn't wait for you to read them, Bradley. I know. I, as I was reviewing these notes that Carolyn pulled together for this episode, she was like, "Just, I can't wait for you to get a little further down on the page." Like it, and and I just kept being like, "Oh, oh my gosh." Um, okay, so if you haven't figured it out already, we are mostly focusing today's episode on women, and and medical gaslighting is most frequent in women and people of color. Um, but like I said, we're mostly going to focus on women. There's a lot of growing research and statistics around gender bias in our healthcare system. And so, A, we're women. B, most of our listeners are women. And C, that's where there are, like, a lot of statistics. So that's, that's kind of why we really want to focus on women. Now, don't hit pause, especially if you're a man. Don't do it. Don't do it. Because this information can help if you have a daughter, if you have a sister, if you have a mother, or just a female friend. So we're going to get in some into some fascinating statistics and also gentlemen is this where I should tell my personal story or should I wait until it later I don't know and the comparison of how you were treated at the doctor compared to how your husband will was yes and seen by the same doctor yes right yeah just give a little so in case you really want to pause you want to hear this story in case men don't realize what kind of full service they often get compared to what women get women get this is a great comparison Briarly and will see the same doctor and they went within us around the 
I would say we went within like a few months of each other. Yeah. Um, now your symptoms were when you had elephant belly, right? Yes, and you it, can go listen to the elephant belly as an earlier uh, episode. It was it was a rant, rant that we did. Yeah, and it ended up being cellulitis, which is pretty serious. Correct. Yes, it was cellulitis. It was antibiotics. It was um, it, there was a lot of question around what it was. And what was the first well, question you got asked? The first question was, could it be PMS because I was bloated? <laughs> because that was my primary symptom was bloat and then discomfort from being bloated. But and it was swollen. not normal bloating. No. I mean, I couldn't. You saw me. I couldn't, couldn't. wear pants. <laughs> so I was like, and I remember he asked the question. And while it's probably a fair question, I, I just, I... It's really the first time I really stood up for myself in front of a doctor. And I was like, we're not even discussing this. That is not it. Like, I was so irritated. Um, But I knew that that was coming. So a few months prior. Well, let me say, you had to kind of ask for some tests. And he he ordered some, a few reluctantly, because he was like, I don't think insurance will cover it. Right. Yeah. You did get what you need, but you had to ask for it. And he was kind of doubtful insurance would cover it. Right. And then I had to go and make a separate appointment with my OBGYN to get a second opinion because oh yeah, he told me that if it persisted, I should just ask her. Because he didn't know right. what it could be in your reproductive system. Right. Exactly. Which I appreciate the fact that he at least, you know, called out that it wasn't necessarily his level of expertise, but nevertheless... It was still like, I think probably what I should have gotten was, you should probably call your OB and go see them sooner rather than later. Instead yeah. of like, if it persists, and here's yeah. some pain medication. Yeah. Which is what I, what I really needed was an antibiotic. Yeah. Okay, fast forward a few months, and Will goes to the doctor. What are Will's symptoms? Yeah, so Will went before I had elephant oh, okay. belly. And he went uh, in the new year, not in the new year, but he went, like, when the new year hit last year, he wanted to go because he was convinced in his mind that he probably had an ulcer or cancer in his stomach or something along those lines because, um, you know, he has he has reflux mm-hmm. and he had lost... Um, he had lost like maybe eight or 10 pounds okay. uh, since we'd been together, mm-hmm. right? So he'd lost some weight and so he was convinced. Now, let me And then he had little... loss of appetite too. Oh, right. He? And he had a loss of appetite. So we've he... got reflux, loss of appetite, and some weight loss. And some weight loss. And the, the not being hungry was like really bothering him. But also it was during a very stressful period for him professionally. Mm-hmm. So... I, you know, I kind of was like, everybody reacts to stress differently, right? Yeah. And so that could be, you know, that could be a part of it. Um, he had a lot of, he had a lot of things going on. So like quick, quick list. Like, first of all, he'd lost the weight since we got together. He eats a lot healthier now that we're together. Um, he had all that professional stress, which explains his loss of appetite. Yes, he has reflux, but he, because he eats healthier now, his reflux is not nearly as it's bad as it was better. like when we first met. The other big thing is that he transitioned away from dipping to nicotine mints, which you would think 
would be a good thing, and it was, but he didn't dip consistently throughout the day, but he chews those mints uh. all day long. And there's these tiny little bit of nicotine in there. And what I told him is, is I had nicotine. Then that cause reflux. Is an appetite suppressant. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is why people who, when they quit smoking, they gain weight. So he had all of these things. So kind of like the puzzle on. pieces fit together to explain a lot of this. But he went to the same doctor, and what did that doctor say or do for him? So he first things first in the office, he had X-rays done, and they did a ton of blood work, like a ton of blood work. They they pretty much ran every panel on him that they could, from like his cholesterol to his testosterone, like liver function. Yes. All the things. Then two days later, he went and he had an ultrasound of his like entire abdominal region. And then about 10 days later, he had not just a colonoscopy, but an endoscopy as well. They ordered all that? All of that. Guess what the final result was? What? He has reflux. (laughs) And he should be more consistent in taking his Prilosec or whatever his reflux medicine of choice is. It's really interesting when you start kind of comparing, you know, you think what you think is apples to apples and it's apples to oranges. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, um, you want to jump into some of the stats about medical gaslighting in women, particularly when it comes to pain? Yes. And this is what, there was a, uh, the most recent article. What got my attention is there were two big articles in the New York Times that came out in, I think 2021 and 2022. Yeah. There was a Washington Post article that really is looking at pain and medical gaslighting when it comes to women. And it came out December 2022. Um, But, and this isn't necessarily directly from that article, but it's research um, from a 2018 study. And it um, looked, it asked doctors to describe men with chronic pain and the results were that men tended to view men with chronic pain as stoic and in control now at the same time they ask doctors to describe women with chronic pain and they were most frequently described as hysterical emotional and complaining that was doctors. This is what doctors said about male and female patients. So men with pain are thought of as stoic and in control. Women with pain are thought of as hysterical, emotional, and complaining. That was shocking to me. A 2016 study suggested that healthcare providers believe women tend to exaggerate their pain more compared to men. I mean, that, and that's totally unbiased. That has to be gender bias. Have you ever watched those videos on the internet about when they put the um, labor um, mimicking machine on men? No. Oh, my gosh. I didn't know there was. I mean, I'm sure some of it's made up, but they put them on men, and it is absolutely hilarious. Even if it's made up, I don't care. I don't think that it is. It's hilarious. And actually, you know what I wish? I wish that we had gotten a urologist, a female urologist, to Uh come on and talk to us about who's had children and had kidney stones and to talk to us about the difference in pain 
between labor and kidney stones. That would be good. We could do a whole episode on how men tolerate pain. Yes, we could. <laughs> right. Um, and then there's another stat. You know, we said the big, bigger issue is that we aren't getting the diagnosis we need. Our symptoms are being ignored. Um, you know, we and we are, most women just continue Continue on. Continue on. Well, or we keep trying to find new providers that we can go and consult with. And we keep getting frustrated. Correct. And this isn't, so the the point is, is before Carolyn blows your mind with this next statistic, is that this isn't just about like, oh, woe is us. This stinks. We're, you know, overlooked. Like this has big repercussions. Yeah. So we aren't getting the labs, the tests that we need for accurate diagnosis and these diagnostic delays put women's lives at risk and one study found that these diagnostic delays are responsible for up to 80,000 deaths in the U.S. every year. We're going with these symptoms. They're not being listened to. They're not being considered important. They're not being, tests aren't being run and because of that it leads to approximately 80,000 deaths a year. Les, can you insert a mic drop here? <laughs> so, and it's not just in the U.S., which we are going to transition and talk about why this is such a big problem in the U.S., but Danish study found that 72% of cases of women, they waited longer for a diagnosis. Yes. Yes. So, it's... It is quite prevalent. And if you look at, and we can get into this more later, but if you look at conditions that are predominantly female, that predominantly Mm -hmm. happen to women, um, things like autoimmune, PCOS, those kind of conditions, I think the average for most of those is like five to seven years to get a diagnosis. It's unbelievable. Isn't that crazy? It really is. Okay, so you were talking about it being in the U.S. Yes, so this, this really, these statistics just made me, like blew my mind, but also made me a little sick to my stomach. So the U.S. ranks the lowest in healthcare for women between the ages of 18 to 49, which is a massive age range compare, when compared to 10 other high-income countries. So I, of course, was like, wait, Carolyn, what are those countries? Sweden, Switzerland, Norway, France, New Zealand, the UK, Germany, Austria, Canada, and the Netherlands. So we are the lowest of those 10 countries. I mean, there are not that many other high-income countries left, I don't think. And this is really, this was a 2022 brief that was written based on 2020 data. Part of that brief also reported that U.S. women have the highest rate of death from avoidable causes compared to women in those other 10 countries. Yeah, the keywords there being avoidable causes. Right. I had to read that stat like three times to really make sure that I was like, that really says avoidable causes? And I'm guaranteeing they probably went to the doctor at some point for some kind of related symptom. Yeah. Researcher, senior researcher that was part of this brief said US women are sicker, more stressed and die younger compared to women in other countries. That's kind of crazy. It is crazy. And like like if we pull back for a minute, what I find so 
shocking, but maybe I shouldn't be so shocked about these, is I think, and maybe it's just because I just came out of that whole, like, having kids, you know, Mm -hmm. stage of life, right? Like, we have a lot of statistics. You see a lot of statistics about how, like, maternal health in general is, like, really poor in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Like, we don't have the infrastructure to support postpartum. Um, We don't have the infrastructure to support even, like, you know, prenatal care the way that some of the other countries do. We don't have, um, you know, like federal maternity leave. We don't even have paid sick leave like federally. And then, and they also like, I know our numbers for um, mortality for women during childbirth are also fairly high considering we're a wealthy country. Yeah. And so that bothers me. And I, and now I'm like, oh my gosh, it's not just that age and stage of life. It's just that that's what I was paying attention to because I was in that age and stage of life. In fact, it's like everywhere. And part of part of this stems from our medical system and how it's been set up and kind of still is set right. up. So like in know, a way it's not necessarily all of the doctors' fault. It's the people who are teaching the doctors and, and it's how our funding the research system is built. Built. So, yes. you know, Women and men are affected differently by, you know, a lot of the same conditions, yet the standard MO, the, the diagnostic criteria, the test for decades has been to apply research findings that are largely from white males to the entire population to create treatment guidelines and standards. So, and this is still happening on a large scale right now in 2023. It makes it easy, and we'll talk about that, for researchers to use white men, do the test, get the findings, and then create these protocols, these standards, these insurance criteria for healthcare. Which is also why not just women are, like, underserved, but so are people of color. Yeah. And, And I... I do think that COVID was perhaps the first time that I really felt like I heard in the in the national media about like racial the difference in risk, yes, yes, and racial disparities. Yeah. Well, part of this is because prior to 1993, they didn't have to include women or people in color yeah. for medical studies. Yeah. And still today, only a small percentage of studies and clinical trials, like for pharmaceuticals, for new drugs, include women and people of color. White men continue to be the quote-unquote norm on which intervention studies and drug trials are done. that floor you? Yeah, it really does. What The fact that in 1993 there was... And the like Congress passed this. It's called the National Institute of Health Revital- Revitalization Act. The fact that they passed it then, and most of what we saw said that that was when they just encouraged, quote unquote, encouraged mm-hmm. researchers to include women and minorities. The fact that it was just being encouraged is just pathetic. Yeah. And then we found a stat that it wasn't until 2016. So we yeah. are talking what five seven plus years. Four, five, six, seven. Twenty twenty-three. Yeah. Seven. Um years ago that that the National Institute of Health required 
women. Um, Record. Gender. Gender, yes, to be considered as a biological variable in most of the studies it funded. But here's the thing, is the NIH isn't the only body funding studies. No. Yeah. So kudos to them, but still. Well, and this is particularly true with medications and drugs. A lot, many of your medical trials, medication trials, still exclude women. So there is a large gap in information on how medications affect half of the population, and women are twice as likely to have an adverse reaction to a drug. So it affects us different. Um, and, and there was a, it went further to say, in fact, 80% of the drugs that are taken off the market are due to significant adverse effects in women. Wow. So why aren't we testing that before they get on the market? Well, you're going to love even more why they aren't testing them, Onus. I couldn't wait for you to you see this. You have got priorly. to drop this bomb. This, this was when my jaw did hit the floor, and I was like, oh, of course they said that. A primary reason for excluding women in, you know, clinical trials, medical studies, pharmaceutical trials today is that a, women, a woman's menstrual cycle really complicates things. It makes it hard to interpret the results due to variances in hormone levels. Which I'll, I, that is factual. You know what I mean? It's not that it's not factual. It's just that it's offensive that nobody has taken the time to try and figure out a better way to design a yeah. study so that women at different stages of their menstrual cycle can participate. Yeah, I'm sorry that makes your study a little harder to do. But I think that's, you know, that's a key component. Correct. You can't ignore it. Correct, exactly. And I just, I mean, I get it. I, I get totally get that it makes it more complicated. But it just, we are, our menstrual cycle complicates things for researchers. Well, it complicates things for me in my everyday life, to be totally honest. Well, it makes us more likely to have a reaction to a medication, you Correct. know, or... Get the wrong diagnosis. Correct. Okay. So, yeah, I can get fired up on that. Um, when it comes to medication that is prescribed, like particularly with pain, um, there's other research that has found that women with chronic pain receive less pain medication. We've already heard that they, doctors think of us as those with chronic pain or females hysterical. with chronic pain as hysterical and emotional. Complaining. Yeah, but they give us less pain medication, and then it's often a medication that is less effective compared to men, and they are more likely to prescribe an antidepressant and give a mental health referral to a female who has chronic pain. I mean... Because we're hysterical and emotional. At least they're giving mental health referrals. Yeah, I do but, like that. But, but, I mean, to... To start with the antidepressant, I mean, but but that's like, that goes back to the perimenopausal thing too, is that instead of being like, oh, this could be a perimenopausal thing, let's explore how we're going to manage, you know, these symptoms and going into menopause, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, oh, you're just forgetful or you're stressed or you probably have depression. Yeah. His hormones are complicated. They're so complicated. Yeah. One of the more studied areas is heart disease. Um, when this it comes is a really to great example, men a really great example that you brought up and women, and it's a, a great example of the healthcare gender bias, and it's one that a lot of experts 
are using to illustrate the difference in the care between men and women. Um, you know, because our healthcare system and diagnostic criteria is set up around men or was originally, mm-hmm. we look, doctors are trained to look for those key like heart attack symptoms or stroke symptoms in men. Right. The, the symptoms in women for a heart attack or stroke are very, very different. They yes. look totally different. Which you actually, unfortunately, witnessed firsthand with your own mother. Yeah. Like, really, really different. Yeah. Yeah. Unless she had said, something is wrong with my neck. Like, she thought she slept on her neck wrong. Yeah. Um, so, um, it's very, very different. But because our medical system has been set up around, you know, treating men, they have found that women wait longer in the emergency room. Women who are having a heart attack wait longer in the emergency room. I can vouch for a mother. Yes. On that, she actually checked herself out, or left the emergency room. Because she sat there for so long. I remember you and I were together when that happened, and we, I remember being like, wait, what? No. Yeah. No. Yeah. Let's see. That usually takes, women are not diagnosed with heart disease until seven to ten years after they've started developing it. Because the symptoms, the signs look different in yeah. women. Yeah. And then what was I telling you right before we got on here? You had said so two other statistics you found was that um women are 50% more likely to be misdiagnosed after they've had a heart attack mm-hmm. and then they're 33% more likely to get a wrong diagnosis if they've had a stroke. Yeah. Because it it's looks a massive different. percentage. Yeah. 50 is huge, 33 yeah. is huge in my opinion. Um and those are really big. Those are both well, you can speak to this better than I can. Those are both major conditions that really require, um, mo- like, import- it's important to monitor and get in the right treatment after. Pretty quickly. You as soon as you can. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So this heart disease is kind of being used as a great example. Look, we've been trained to think a heart attack means, like, chest pain and, you know, all those common symptoms that are associated with men, it looks very, very different in women. And there have been several studies that have looked at the effects of that, like the, you know, increased time women have to wait for care or to get medication and get effective medication. So it's just kind of interesting with that. So to wrap up, I think what we are hoping to do is empower people to... Advocate for Advocate. yourself. And, well, you know my favorite word, validate. And validate the fact that, like, if you've experienced this, this is actually a thing. Yeah. You're not alone. You have a right to be frustrated. You have a right to feel stupid. You have a right to ask for another doctor. Yeah. You have a right to never go back to that doctor or healthcare provider. Which I've done that, actually. Yeah. And then I had a follow-up scheduled, and then they called me. Yeah. And I just never answered. Never. I mean, I should have been better, but I just was like, I don't. Yeah. I mean, I think, you don't have time for me. Why should I have time for you? I think it may be harder for maybe women that are a little bit older. I know speaking from my mother <clears throat> prior to her heart attack, um, luckily I'd just gotten her to change doctors before she had her heart attack. But um, prior to that, you know, I'd be like, why didn't he do this? Why didn't he ask this? And she was like, I don't know. It must not be important. And like, I was like, you need a new doctor. She's like, he's fine. I think he's really good. And like, you just have to add, if you aren't getting the answers you need or you don't feel like they're listening to you or your gut is telling you something's not right, go to, get a second opinion. Get a third opinion. Go 
to someone else. And Reagan said that when we interviewed her. She said that the spot that that where her cancer was found ended up being a spot that they had looked at multiple times Mm -hmm. and she was given the all clear and she just her gut you know didn't believe it but she didn't know how to ask at the time like she I think it was like she didn't know I don't want to totally speak for her but it was like I think she didn't know like what specific test to get but I do think that even if you don't know the specifics of it you can find another doctor like I went to my OB and frankly I probably should have asked my OB some other questions yeah um about other like more feminine health things right while I was there but you just ask around and friends I feel like friends are always willing to give you advice if you oh, yeah. have the guts to ask them. Yeah. Like if you have the guts and you don't, you might not, it might take you some, a little while to get the courage, but trust your gut, trust your gut, trust your gut. I think that is women's best tool that they have. And actually I did recently did a podcast with, um, on super, um, super woman wellness with Dr. Taz mm. in Atlanta. Um, and I spoke about the medical gaslighting that I went through as a mother getting Madeline a diagnosis. And that was my takeaway. Like, trust your gut, trust your gut, trust your gut. Yeah. And be an advocate for yourself or your child. Yeah. Even if it means making people mad. I think sometimes it's easier as a mother to advocate for your child. Yes. To trust your gut to advocate for your child. And so I wish that we would all advocate for ourselves in the same way that we advocate for I our agree. children. I agree. And I think it it took me getting pushed over the edge with medical gaslighting with my child to make me a fierce advocator now for myself. Yeah. Because I just, I don't put up with anything now. So you'll have to hear what, y'all have to go listen to um, that episode. I'll link it in the show notes and kind of what my breaking point was. Um, at the big children's hospital here. Mm, I cannot wait to listen to it because I haven't. I saw you post it recently. I hope everyone found this helpful. And, I mean, it's sad, but we really want to empower people. um, Yeah, just get a little bit mad enough to be empowered to advocate for yourself. And advocate for your family. I mean, you advocated for your mother. Yeah. You know, I mean, sometimes we need to do that. Yeah. Sometimes you may have family members who actually need you to advocate for them. Correct. So, okay. Well, turn off the podcast and uh, make that next appointment that you've been avoiding. Yep. Go do it. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us for the Happy Eating Podcast. I'm Briarly Horton. And I'm Carolyn Williams. If you liked this week's episode, then don't forget to rate and leave us a review on iTunes and be sure to hit the subscribe button so you'll never miss a new episode. We can't wait to have you back at our table next week for a brand new episode. Bye. Bye. The contents discussed in the Happy Eating Podcast, such as advice, studies, text, graphics, images, and other material discussed or presented on the site or podcast are for informational purposes only content is not intended to be a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional or other qualified health providers with any questions you may have regarding your condition. Never disregard professional advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on the Happy Eating Podcast. If you are in crisis or think you may have an emergency, call your doctor or 911 immediately. 
If you're having suicidal thoughts, call 1-800-273-TALK, that's 8255, to talk to a skilled, trained counselor at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. If you are located outside the United States, call your local emergency line immediately.